Blog Talk Radio. Eastern family and friends. It's great having you with us tonight. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the Eastern Airlines radio show. Welcome and thank you for listening and calling the show. You have truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. Every Monday at this time, we are live on the air with our Eastern Talk Radio. Tonight, however, we're doing a repeat of a show we have broadcast for the past five years. It's around Halloween time, and it is an eastern flight on Halloween evening from Atlanta to San Juan. Of course, the flight's path is through the Bermuda Triangle, as some people refer to an area in the Atlantic Ocean. Our crew departs Atlanta in the dark hours of Halloween on an L-1011 aircraft. The script was written by yours truly and was intended to add humor suspense, and reports by others as to the fictional or non-fictional writings by some that has caused this area to be called the Bermuda Triangle. We'll let you decide which has your vote. We will not be taking any calls during the show as it is a rebroadcast of a show we did one year ago. I see our flight is ready for takeoff, so we'll get Flight 434 in the air after this Eastern commercial. The airline that doesn't plan for the future may not have one. Five years ago, Eastern saw the future in a remarkable aircraft. Now it's here. The new Boeing 757, the most advanced, most fuel-efficient commercial jet ever built. It's going to help Eastern hold down the cost of flying for years to come. We earn our wings for from our normal historical theme. Now, let's see if we can scare you out of your wits as we take you on a flight through the Bermuda Triangle on this two days before Halloween. Now, let's get flight 388 in the air. Tower Blur is 650 volt. SD 27 left, little and Eastern clear to take off. Atlanta, Georgia for San Juan, Puerto Rico, 
with 318 passengers, three flight crew members, and seven members. 50 miles east of Ormond Beach, Florida, flight enters an area of suspicious reported activity known as the Bermuda Triangle. Aircraft, ships, private boats, and people have been reported as missing in this area over the past several decades. Let's listen in as the crew members check in for the flight. Hey, Captain Jim, Mike, and Chuck. I'm sure glad to see that you're the crew instead of those pilots on my last trip. Talk about no fun at all. We had a 20-hour layover in New York, and all they wanted to do was just stay in their rooms. But enough of that. I was drafted for this here trip as my best friend Linda got sick, and they called me out. You know, it was really so strange. She was fine one minute, and then she just started acting like she was possessed or something. I have no idea what took hold of her. I reckon it was just fatigue. Guess she just doesn't. She guess she just wasn't meant to be on this plane tonight. And of all nights, Halloween. Anyway, what have you guys got exciting to do when you get to San Juan besides trick or treating for free food? Great seeing you again, little man. I think you're on a trip where we had that Miami layover. Remember when we took that Whisper Jet up to check out the preservation of maintenance, and you wanted to tag along, and then they had the audacity to report us missing. Yeah, that was fun. I admit, I'm missing Boeing 727. Can you believe that? As if we stole it. Well, do you know where we are right now, Luann? Why, sure, Mike. In an airplane in the air. Didn't you know that? Yes, <laughs> I know that. But how about smack dab in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle? Oh, come on, Mike. You know Luann doesn't believe in stories. It's been told about the Bermuda Triangle and aircraft being lost while flying in the area between Bermuda, Miami, and San Juan. Is that where we are now? Oh, Lordy, and it's Halloween night? Is everything okay with our airplane, Captain? Thank the good Lord, our flight number isn't 666. <laughs> well, well, let's just check this gal out. Oh, the fuel looks good. The oil quantity and the oil pressure seem to be normal. The electrical system looks good. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Chuck, look up there on the panel. Do I see the number one or number two generators disagreeing with number three? Uh, yeah, you're you're right, Kevin. It does seem to, in disagreement. Darn it, Mike, I wish you hadn't have brought up about that being there in the Bermuda Triangle. Anything can go wrong now. I'd better go back and tell the rest of the crew to review the emergency ditching checklist. And they were all out here in the Bermuda Triangle where anything can go wrong, and we're having problems already. Uh, Chuck, I've had problems with these 1011 generators before, and I might have a solution to the problem. I even made some notes about it on an earlier flight. Let's just see if the situation gets any worse than it is now. We might not have to use this homemade fix of mine if it stays within the range that it seems to be in. But if we lose those cabin lights, though, it'll be the same as I had before. We'll just have to go through my fix to get it working again. Well, I'm going back to do some emergency studying. Oh, please try to get it fixed. Please. Eastern Flight 388, uh, contact Miami Center on... One two three point ninety five, and you guys have a nice flight. Hey, before you go, is Luann Wiggins on the flight tonight? Yeah, Luann is working senior tonight. Do you want us to pass a message to her? Uh, just tell her Charlie in Atlanta Center said to be careful out there in the Bermuda Triangle. I know that's where you guys are headed. Uh, I don't know about telling her that. She's already spooked already. Okay, Atlanta, we're going over to 123.95. We'll see you on the way back. Miami Center, this is Eastern 388 with you at flight level 
they continue their flight towards their San Juan destination, an unusual radio contact is received by the crew. An air traffic controller, not recognized by the crew, gives the crew a strange clearance that the crew cannot carry out. Eastern Flight 388, this is BT Center. Please turn to a heading of zero nine or zero degrees for radar identification. This is what the heck, BT Center? Where the heck is BT Center? We're Bermuda Triangle Center. We've been here since 1941 and have always controlled flights in this area. We work many flights through this area for many years now. Uh, climb to and maintain flight level 550. Bermuda Triangle Center? Did you say Bermuda Triangle Center? When did they add Bermuda Triangle Center? We've we've been flying through this route for years and never heard of Bermuda Triangle Center. What happened to Miami Center? Uh, Mike, let me talk to this prankster. I know it's Halloween and we're in the middle of the so-called Bermuda Triangle, but just going a little bit overboard. Center, this is the captain of 388. And just what kind of fun are you guys having flights tonight? It better be in all good spirit this game you're playing. You know we can't make it flight level 550. Well, this aircraft's only certificated at flight level 440, and we can't even make that without a full load of passengers and fuel. I'm sorry, but we're going to stay at flight level 370. Whoever you are, make note of that. Roger, I understand. You're leaving flight level 370 for flight level 550. Negative, 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 Senator. We're staying right where we are, and... altimeters. We're climbing. We can't operate at 55,000 feet. We won't be able to hold the cabin pressure at 8.2 differential. We're going to be on oxygen if we continue at this climb. I'm donning my mask. If it's okay, Captain, I'm taking it off autopilot to see what happens. If it's okay, I'll reduce the power to stay at 370. Yes, yes, yes. Let's reduce the power and see if we can maintain this altitude. Center. This is no joking matter now. We're going back to our original heading, and we're staring where we are at flight level 370. I don't think you'll be able to do that, Eastern 388, but go ahead and try if you insist. You see, we have you under our control in this area, as you will soon discover. Mike, go back to Atlanta Center. See if we can still raise them quick. Captain, I flipped back to the last frequency before coming over to Miami Center, or is it now Bermuda Triangle Center, and I'm getting uh, static. Maybe we can reach San Juan Center from our present position. Have you noticed the glowing effect on our windows? It appears to be getting more intense by the minute. It's unlike any San almost fire I've ever seen before. Yeah, I saw that too. And now the flight is going crazy. Mike, see if you can bring Miami Center up on emergency frequency, 121.5. That will let anybody know, monitoring the frequency, hear us our transmission. Put the hijack code on the transponder. It seems like we've been somehow, somehow mysteriously hijacked. Okay, Captain. This is Eastern 388, transmitting on guard. Does anyone read us? Again, this is Eastern 388, anyone on the frequency reading us? No luck, Captain, on that. Eastern. 388, your efforts will fail trying to make contact with anyone. We have control of your aircraft and communications. We will take you to your destination. Listen up. 
high flight is the San Juan. That Sierra Juliet uniform, Franklin Center, or whatever you call yourself. Uh, hey, guys, don't look now, but we're starting to descend. Uh, what in the heck's going on? First we climbed, now we're descending. It's going to be hard to control the cabin with this madness going on. You will be arriving at your destination in 30 minutes. Make preparations. I suggest you prepare for your landing. How can we don't we don't even know where Shareport we're going to land at? We need to know the runway lengths, wind direction, temperatures, navigation aids. Is this one of the Bahamian Island airports? We will be overweight to land unless we have a ten thousand foot runway. Well, Mike, Chuck, obviously we have been hijacked by some automated control system operated by some evil and fiendish group known as the Meter Triangle Center. You better get Luann up here and let's tell her what we know, which certainly is not very much right now. Hey, uh, Luann, you and uh, Elizabeth, come on up. The captain wants to fill you in on our flight in case you're wondering about all the power changes. Yeah, we thought we were climbing, and now it feels like we're descending. Elizabeth and I will be right up. and it looks like some military planes are flying alongside. Do we have a very important person on board? They sure look very close to our airplane. Let me lean over and have a look outside. Yeah, I do see that bright glow out there. Thanks, ma'am. I'll go and advise the captain right now. I'll be back and let you know what it might be. Oh, thanks, miss. I'll keep a lookout to see if they fly away or make any changes. You do that, and we'll be right back. What's going on, you guys? got a lady in 4A that sees a bright glowing light outside and some aircraft flying alongside. Realizing the flight was under the control of an outside force, the crew now has become passengers of their own heavy wide-bodied L-1011, commencing a descent for landing on a small island in the Caribbean Sea. As they descend for landing, in the distance they can see an airport which appears to be too small to handle their large jumbo jet. And as they fly closer to the island, the second officer comments. Captain, that, that runway sure looks shorter than what I've grown to accustomed to. I'm going to get into the aircraft manual and check out our landing weights. And if we have anything to say or do about it, yeah, the thought it entered my mind, too. See what weight we need to be for landing without driving the wheel struts up through the wings. And let's go. we got to assume that what we see down there is about 5,000 feet long. It can't be any longer. Just as I suspected, Captain, we're way too heavy for landing. I'm not sure if we touch down the runway, we'll be able to hold or, or support the weight. Even if, we, if it does, my concern, we may not be able to stop at the other end. Yeah, whoever's controlling us may know this and have plans that are out of our control, but we prepare the best we can. Call Luann to the cockpit immediately. Chuck, is anything we can do to get a weight down? Elizabeth and I are right behind you, Captain. You've got our attention. Well, I didn't see you come up. Uh, stand by for a minute, Luann. Luann. Well, the only thing I can think of is to jettison fuel. We're not being able to fly this aircraft ourselves. I'm not sure we'll be able to get our weight down in time. 
Luann, we have a problem. First, we've been taken over by a force we've yet to determine. We've been forced to land an airport we're too heavy to land at. And if we don't go off the runway, we still may not be able to stop at the other end. We are excessively overweight for landing. I know what you're, I know what you're going to say, and I'll get the cabin ready for possible crash landing or ditching. You guessed it. Prepare for a crash landing and or water ditching. Call me when you're a little bit have the cabin ready. We don't have much time. I expect to be touching down within the next 15 minutes or so, so call me when you're finished. Okay, we're on it, and I have to say that Air Kentucky Little Red Lear would look good right about now. Elizabeth, you get the flight attendants in the back ready for a crash landing or ditching, and I'll take the front cabin. Okay, Loran, we'll be ready in the back. What do we tell the passengers? They'll want to know what's going on, you know. Captain, can you help us out with the PA announcements? Yeah, Elizabeth, I'll try to make up some sort of announcement as soon as we get this thing figured out. Just tell them the captain will be on the PA very soon. Okay, okay. cockpit door and pushes it open as she and Elizabeth proceed into the passenger cabin. Startled, they both look at each other in shock and disbelief. They both hurry to the rear cabin and discover the same quite emptiness there too. Even the rest of the, their crew is missing. They both turn around and rush back to the cockpit and bang the coded knock on the door. She hears the lock release and pulls the door open and rushes into the cockpit. Captain, you're not going to believe this, but both first class and coach are empty. Even the other five flight attendants are gone. Only Elizabeth and I are left. Now what are we going to do? Well, I don't time, have time to ask why or how. What the hell, Chuck? Get back in those performance books and tell me we'll be light enough to land now that all the people are gone. That should make quite a big difference. Luann, you and Elizabeth get in the jump seats up here in the cockpit. Buckle yourself in tight. There's no need for you to go back to the cabin now. If we go off the end, we won't need to slide. Hell, maybe we will. Maybe they would, should float for us, and we can get on them. Well, um, the weight's been reduced considerably, but we'd still be too heavy for landing. Whoever is controlling this flight has given us a helping hand. Maybe the missing passengers and the rest of Luann's crew will be waiting for us at the terminal when we land. I can't believe all this is happening. Captain, I just felt a small jolt in the controls, and it appears they've given back the flight controls to us. Uh, we can make our landing now. Uh, even though it's my leg, I would rather you make this landing. I, you, it's your aircraft, I think.
the first officer and second officer go through the landing checklist, and when the speed is reduced, the captain calls for 40 degrees flaps as he slows the aircraft for landing speed. On the radio altimeter, they hear the oral warning, 500 feet. The captain, first officer, and second officer take a quick glance to ensure the gear is down and flaps are full down and the aircraft is slowing to landing speed. The oral warning sings out 100 feet as the first officer takes a quick glance of the instrument panel and all lights are in agreement. Almost immediately following, they hear 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. Power is reduced and they wait for the ground to reach up and touch the wheels. Only this time the wheels are reaching too and a solid landing is made. Either. 
As a group of five, the remaining crew walks down an empty jetway and into the terminal. To their total surprise, the five missing cabin crew members and all of Eastern Flight 388's passengers are sitting in the cavernous waiting area just inside the terminal. Suddenly, a young pilot dressed in a World War II flight suit appears in front of them. Welcome to BT-ATOL number four, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Cap Lieutenant Charles Taylor. I've been chosen to welcome you to your new final destination here on the BT-ATOL number four. You will be briefed on the rest of your life by my Navy Flight 19 crew, and I will debrief, uh, as we were debriefed, December 5th, 1945. You'll meet others that came by air and by sea in all types of vessels, military, private, commercial, like a beautiful equipment you parked outside. There's no need to detail all that is will become part of your legacy. You have the rest of your lives for that. But for now, welcome. The crew is escorted to a briefing room by Lieutenant Charles Taylor, where he is met by none other than Amelia Earhart, dressed as she was when she and Fred Noonan departed Lae, New Guinea, July 2, 1937, for Howland Island in the Pacific Ocean. Captain Jim, First Officer Mike, Second Officer Chuck, Miss Luann, and Miss Dars, Elizabeth. Welcome to BT Atoll Number Four. BT stands for Bermuda Triangle. I was sent from a similar area in the Pacific Ocean, known as DS for Devil Sea Atoll Number Three. There are twelve such areas around the world. There's plenty of time to tell you about my own experience during my flight around the world in 1937. Let me tell you of a few others you will get to know here at BT Atoll Number Four. Some of our naval craft are the USS Pickering, August 20, 1800, with a crew of 90. The USS Wasp, October 9, 1814, with a crew of 140. HMS Atalante, January 1880, with a crew of 290. The USS Cyclops, March 4, 1918, with 390 naval personnel. Dorefu Kamaru, 1924, the Japanese freighter. Revenoff, December 1967, a racing yacht. There are many, many more of our ship guests you will be meeting. A few of our aviation guests are Navy Flight 19, known as the Lost Squadron, December 5th, 1945, with six pilots. Star Tiger, the British Lancaster bomber. January 29, 1948, with a crew of six. San Juan to Miami, DC-3 Charter, December 28, 1949, with 36 passengers and crew. U.S. Globemaster, March 1950. U.S. Navy Constellation, October 1954, with 42 passengers and crew. U.S. C-119 Flying Boxcar, June 5th. 1965, with a crew of 10. All of the hundreds of life dwellers here will tell you, in their time, their own personal stories, and I'm sure they'll want to know yours. You've met Lieutenant Taylor, and he can give you details of his arrival here at BTL number 4. Lieutenant Taylor? Oh, thank you, Miss Earhart. We were, or I should say we are, a training squadron of five TBM-3 Navy Adventure aircraft consisting of five officers and nine enlisted crew members. Our flight plan that December 5, 1945, was designed to take us in a triangular flight pattern starting at the Naval Air Station in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, then fly 160 miles east, 40 nautical miles to the north, and then back to our base, following a southwest course. 
We had enough fuel to cruise for over a thousand miles. It was a beautiful sunny day with a temperature in the mid-60s and a few scattered clouds in the area. This was ideal flying weather. We took off at 2 p.m. and gathered at 2.15 p.m. for our mission. I have over 2,500 flying hours and was the command pilot for this mission. I led the group to Chicken Shoals, just north of Bimini, where we made the bombing run on the first target. All of my pilots and crew are a very experienced group. At about 3.15 p.m., after bombing run, we had accomplished, I called the Fort Lauderdale Tower, relaying an emergency situation that we seemed to be off course and we could not see land. The tower asked for our position, and I told him that I was not sure of my position and that we seemed to be lost. I, instructed, I was instructed to take up a course of 270 degrees due west. I told him I was unable to determine which way west was and that everything seemed to be wrong. Even the ocean looked different. An instructor pilot, whom I did not know, picked up on my radio transmission to Fort Lauderdale Tower, and I told him that my, my compasses were both out, and I was sure that I was in the Keys, but I didn't know how far down. The instructor advised me to fly north and keep the sun on my port side until I reached the Lauderdale Naval Air Station. It was then that I saw a small island with a very short runway. It had become very windy and the water appeared to be more white than coloring. As, all, as we all landed our aircraft and have been here ever since December 5th, 1945. Shortly after our arrival, Lieutenant Combe and his crew of 13 arrived. They were sent out on the Martin Mariner flying boat patrol plane from the Banana River National Guard Station. He, too, experienced the same problems with his compass system becoming lost until he saw this island. Thank you, Lieutenant Taylor. You will hear many similar experiences from the dwellers here. We hope you will become adjusted to your new life on BG Atoll number four. With all due respect to you, Ms. Earhart and Lieutenant Taylor, Elizabeth and I will not stick around to hear any more of these stories as we have our trip to complete to San Juan. Luann turns and runs toward the gate where Eastern Flight 388 was parked, only to find there was no door, jetway, or aircraft which they had brought in only a few minutes before. Nothing. Vacant. Gone. Luann pushed at the blank wall where recently there had been a door and passageway. Mm. Open. Open, please. Help. Open. tonight. I hope I can put this nonsense of a dream behind me. I'll just stay busy all day and forget that horrible dream. It is now check-in time at the Atlanta Eastern Flight Operations Briefing Room and the crew for Eastern Flight 388 have assembled for their crew briefing. Okay, folks, let me introduce the cockpit guys. I'm Captain Jim Holder. This is First Officer Mike Scott, and that fella is Second Officer Don Gagon. 
I see some of my crew members. I already know. Lou Ann, we've flown together, right? Yes, Cam, I remember so well our last trip to Providence on the missing aircraft, which reminds me of a dream I had last night. Oh, but you don't want to hear about my crazy dream. Oh, you too. I had a dream there would be a sequel to the worst Twilight Zone episode ever written. <laughs> and you'd never believe this one. Couldn't be any worse than the one I had. You've all got to be kidding. I, too, had a weird dream. It all took place in the Bermuda Triangle. Well, the Bermuda Triangle, you say. I had a dream, too, that involved that area of our flight tonight. Have y'all all been discussing this before I'm meeting here? Man, this is some coincidence. I've been trying to forget it all day, but can't seem to shake it out of my head. Maybe it's because it's Halloween night. Did you say that our flight takes us through the Bermuda Triangle tonight, Captain? Smack dab in the middle, as middle gets, Luann. Hey, we don't believe in dreams, and the Bermuda Triangle, we all know, is just a imaginary for those wanting to write a book or make some money on stupid stuff like the Devil's Triangle. It's not about to happen tonight or any other night before or after tonight. I'm going to do the pre-fight, and you all on board? We'll see. The aircraft is, oh, no, it's... 318, the ghost ship of L-1011. Check your underwear. (laughs) Great, guys. The cast for tonight's show. Our narrator was Bill Joseph. Captain Steve, uh, our captain was Jim Holder. First officer, Mike Scott. Second officer, Chuck Albright. Luann Wiggins, played by Carrie Holder. Dorothy or Elizabeth, played by Dorothy Gagnon. The BTC <laughs> was me. Jim Hart was supposed to take that, and he had uh, issues with the uh, his computer. And it was in the triangle. Neil, <laughs> must have been radio problem. The tri- triangle. Squadron leader. Lieutenant Taylor was played by Don Gagnon, and Amelia Earhart, the voice of Amelia Earhart, Colleen DeFelice, and I was the Atlanta Tower. Did I leave anyone out? I think we got them all. Okay, that was uh, really good. Now, we have some very interesting facts about, I don't know whether they're called facts, but uh, stories about the Bermuda Triangle that have been written and we want to bring out these points, some interesting points about the Bermuda Triangle. Jim Holder, would you start us out? Yes, I will. Thank you, Neil. The triangle extends from Bermuda in the north to southern Florida, and then east to a point through the Bahamas, past Puerto Rico, to about 40 degrees west longitude, and then back to Bermuda. This is referred to as the Bermuda Triangle, where more than 100 airplanes and ships have literally vanished into the air or water. Most of them since 1945, and where more than 1,000 lives have been lost without a single body or even a piece of wreckage from the vanishing airplanes or ships having been found. Chuck? The most varied and imaginative explanations have been offered and seriously considered to account for the continuing disappearance and assumed fatalities because No bodies have been found. Some explanations include sudden tidal waves caused by earthquakes, fireballs which explode in the airplane, attacked by sea monsters, time-space warp leading to another dimension, electromagnetic and gravitational vortexes, which cause the planes to crash or ships to lose themselves at sea, captured or kidnapped by flying or Submarine UFOs manned by entities from surviving cultures of entity outer space. Or future for looking for specimens of currently existing inhabitants. And one that I've seen the other day, maybe microbursts. One of the most striking suggestions was actually predicted by Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet. 
a psychic and healer who died in 1944. Casey predicted decades before the possibility of laser beams was suspected that the ancient Atlanteans used crystal as a power source, specifically located in the Bimini area and is and presumably subsequently sunk in the tongue of the ocean off Andros in the Bahamas, where many of the disappearances have taken place. In this concept, a maverick power source sunk a mile deep to the west of Andros would still be exerting its occasional pull on the compasses and electronic equipment of today's ships and planes. There are many marine or aeronautical authorities who would observe that it is perfectly natural for planes, ships, or yachts to disappear in an area where there is so much sea and air travel, subject to sudden storms, and the multiple possibilities of navigational mistakes and accidents. These same authorities are likely to make the comment that the Bermuda Triangle does not exist at all, and that the very term is a misnomer a manufactured mystery for the diversion of the curious and imaginative reader. The airlines that service the area, encompassed by the Bermuda Triangle, concur with this opinion with understandable enthusiasm, although there are many experienced pilots who are not so sure of its non-existence. Those who claim that the Triangle does not exist are in one sense correct, for the Bermuda Triangle of unexplained disappearances may not be a true triangle, but actually more of an ellipse, or perhaps a gigantic circle with the apex near Bermuda and the curved bottom extending from lower Florida past Puerto Rico, curving south and east through the Sargasso Sea, then back to Bermuda. Even the United States Coast Guard, which does not believe in the Bermuda Triangle, obligingly identifies the location to those requesting the information about it in a form letter file 572 from the 7th Coast Guard District. It begins as follows. The Bermuda Triangle, correction, the Bermuda or Devil's Triangle, uh, is imaginary area located off the southwestern Atlantic coast of the United States, which is noted for high uh, incidents of unexplained losses of ships, small boats, and aircraft. These apexes of the triangle are generally accepted to be Bermuda, Miami, Florida, and San Juan, Puerto Rico. No further message was ever received from the Flight 19 training mission or from the Martin Mariner that was sent to rescue them. In spite of the one history's most intensive searches involving 240 planes, 67 additional planes from the carriers uh, Solomons, four destroyers, several submarines, 18 Coast Guard vessels, search and rescue cutters, hundreds of private planes, yachts, and boats, and additional PBMs from the Banana River Naval Air Station, and helped from the Royal Air Force and Royal Navy units in the Bahamas, nothing was found. A daily average of 167 flights flying about 300 feet above the water from dawn to dusk. A minute inspection of 380,000 square miles of land and sea, including Caribbean, the Caribbean parts of the Gulf of Mexico, and the Florida mainland and neighboring islands, with air search time totaling 4,100 hours, revealed no life rafts, no wreckage, and no oil slicks. The beaches of Florida were checked daily for a period of several weeks for identifiable flotsam from the lost planes, but without success. Lieutenant Commander R.H. Wershing, a training officer at the Fort Lauderdale Naval Air Base at the time of the incident, thinks that the word disappear is an important factor concerning the fate of the crew of Flight 19, as no proof has ever been abduced that they effectively perished. A mother of one of the lost pilots who attended the naval briefing incident at the time stated that she had received the impression that her son, quote, was still alive 
somewhere in space, unquote. Dr. Manson Valentine, a scientist who has watched the area for many years from Miami, was quoted by the Miami News as saying, they are still there, but in different dimensions of a magnetic phenomenon that could have been set up by a UFO, end quote. A Coast Guard officer, a member of the Board of Inquiry, expressed himself with a rather refreshing frankness, and ASD observed, quote, we don't know what the hell is going on out there, end of quote. A final, more normal statement from another officer of the board expressed the consensus of the investigating officers. Quote, this unprecedented peacetime law seems to be a total mystery, the strangest ever investigated in the annals of naval aviation, unquote. We now live in a world where the lines of science and power of science are converging, a world where what was once magic or the dreams of magicians have been adopted by science and made acceptable by science nomenclature. Biologics can now produce life. Cryogenic biologists will soon be able to preserve human life indefinitely through freezing live bodies. That transfer of pictures to film has been proven. Psychokinesis, the moving of objects by force of will, is no longer uh, a matter for levity, but one of serious experimentation. Telepathy to and from outer space is a subject for experiments by both of the leading space powers. The alchemist's dream, the transmutation of matter, is no longer impossibility, and the only impediment to transmuting quantities of lead, lead into gold is that it would be too expensive. On a more cosmic scale, the firmament of scientific verities has opened into crevices so great that many of those who prefer to stand on solid and familiar ground feel dizzy and disoriented. The possibility of the existence of antimatter, the curvature of space and time, new concepts of gravity and magnetism, the suspected existence of dark planets in our own system, imploding suns, novas, and small particles of matter heavier than an entire planet, quasars and the dark holes in space, an endless universe which grows larger as our telescopic vision extends to millions of undiscovered galaxies. This is the arcane knowledge that awaits us as we rush forward at so accelerated a speed that no mystery should surprise us, simply because it does not seem logical. The Bermuda Triangle, an area located on the familiar territory of our planet, although perhaps connected with forces which we do not yet, but may soon understand, may be one of these mysteries. As a species, we are now approaching maturity. We cannot retreat from the search for knowledge or new explanations either in this world or beyond. The points in commentary have been taken from Charles Berlitz's book, The Bermuda Triangle. Thank you so much, host and cast. I appreciate uh, the uh, entertainment and the information that uh, Charles Berlitz uh, had in his book, The Bermuda Triangle. And now we want to uh, see if we can get some opinions from those uh, of our hosts and listeners about uh, their view about the Bermuda Triangle. I'm going to start off with Shay Oakley. I think he has a commentary of his own about the Bermuda Triangle. So, Shay, how about starting us off? Uh, well, first of all, I want to say, Neil, that uh, Rod Serling's got nothing on you. Uh, I... Uh, <laughs> Especially when the when when they found out their escort was the uh, was the Avengers, I love that moment in particular. That was uh, that was pretty cool. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, now I feel like I'm uh, going to be a spoil sport because uh, yeah, my my input into this is back in the 70s is when this uh, the whole Bermuda Triangle thing was at its height. And I was a kid back then, and I I had all the books. I had Bermuda Triangle, Devil's Triangle. Limbo of the Lost, I like that one especially. 
Uh, but one day I was at the bookstore, and uh, there was a, a book on the shelf in the mystery section called The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Salt. And uh, I immediately asked my parents if I could have this book because I figured, wow, all right, they finally found out that it's UFOs or Atlanteans or a time warp or whatever. Well, it turned out it was written by an investigative reporter named Lawrence uh, David Kush, and he went into the records uh, for both uh, sea and air uh, incidents that recorded in the legend of, of the Triangle. And he did really deep research on them. And what he found was that, well, it was as bad as some of the ships being invented altogether. They had never existed. They, they couldn't find any record of them in Lloyd's, uh, you know, of London's shipping list. Uh, in other cases, you had ships or aircraft that were supposed to be disappearing in perfect weather, and when he went back and looked at the weather, there was a hurricane or a gale. Uh, there were other ones where they said nothing was ever found. There was no trace, and actually wreckage had been found. Uh, pretty much... 90% of the of the legend uh, of the various aircraft and ships that were lost were were distorted in one way or another, or just made up wholly. Now, there are were a couple exceptions to that. Flight 19 was one of them, uh, but there were a few things about Flight 19 that that they really weren't discussed in the uh, the book uh, prior to his. Uh, he went back and looked at the Navy investigative records and found that there were a whole bunch of things that were going on that day and that night because their fuel was exhausted at 8 p.m. Uh, that aren't in the legend, uh, including the fact that they got a, a fix on them as being well north of the Bahamas, but they couldn't hear uh, when they were trying to radio the fix to them. Uh, the fact that it was pretty clear that uh, they were flying uh, north thinking they were in the Gulf of Mexico when they were actually uh, east of Florida, north of the Bahamas, uh, and that uh, they weren't willing to transfer radio over to a frequency that would have been easier to get a triangulation on them uh, and contact with them because uh, Taylor didn't want to, uh, to have any change in, in radio frequencies because he had the aircraft under his command. He didn't want anybody to be on the wrong frequency. And then finally, the fact that at 8 o'clock when they reached fuel exhaustion, uh, the weather was... Uh, described as high winds and tremendous seas. Uh, they had good weather when they left. Bad weather had come in that night. Uh, so, based on on that, I think you're you're looking at five aircraft that uh, that ran out of fuel, went down in heavy seas. Even in a good ditching, an Avenger was was good for about 50, 60 seconds on the surface before it sank, uh, hitting the water uh, in in heavy uh, conditions. Uh, it would have sank almost immediately. Um, oh, and then the Mariner flying boat. I'll, I'll end with this. The Mariner flying boat is part of the, the Flight 19 legend that the first uh, aircraft they sent out to look for it disappeared. Well, it did disappear uh, at exactly the point that it uh, was seen by the USS Gaines Mills, which was a ship that saw an aircraft explode in flight and uh, and crash flames and the mariners were known as flying uh, gas cans they had bad reputation for fuel leakage uh, crews didn't dare light a cigarette on board a mariner PBM and uh, it's pretty clear what happened to that aircraft in fact the Gaines Mills found an oil slick and some wreckage although the Navy wasn't able to find it the next day but with that kind of weather you would expect that so I am a total triangle skeptic I don't believe there's anything supernatural going on whatsoever. But it was a great story uh, when I was a kid back in the 70s, and I was reading all that kind of stuff, including, by the way, The Ghost of uh, Flight uh, 401, which I think I read so many times the book fell apart. <laughs> so that, that's my take on it. Shay, uh, did they make a movie about this with Ernest Borgnine in it also? Uh, well, they they made a movie about the Ghost of Flight 401. Yeah, where where yeah, Borg Nine I yeah. think played Don Repo. Uh, yeah, yeah. There, there was a movie about it, and I actually bought the book again recently, not because of the ghost story, but because uh, Fuller did a pretty good description of the flight and the accident and the investigation itself. Yeah. So it's worth having for that. Uh, <clears throat> but I'm not buying the, uh, the ghost story. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Neil. I got, yeah. a, I got a little Bermuda Triangle. 
Uh, go ahead. I saw, it surprised me that the U.S. Air Force C-119 was lost in 1965. Well, before I came with Eastern, I was fresh out of pilot training, and my unit had the C-119 J-Models. And in 1962, we were flying support for the Cuban crisis to the Puerto Rico Air Guard. And we came out of... Uh, the plane somewhere, spent the night at Miami at the homestead just south of Miami, and I was brand new on the airplane, and the flight commander, the crew commander was a, a captain, and he certainly supposed to know what he's doing. And we took off heading to San Juan, and we almost became part of the Bermuda Triangle stories because she flew the wrong head for about 100 miles, and we were outside of land, and we were VFR, no radar, no nothing. And then the brilliant co-pilot realized that we were supposed to be flying about 120, not 90. He was flying the wrong radio on the departure. And boy, I'll tell you, we made a hard, screaming-ass right turn. Otherwise, we'd have been the second, the first C-119 lost in it with me to track. Not fun to be Neil, just like you and Mike and everybody else. And that's the only time I ever felt like I was in any danger, but but uh, we survived that little venture. I know, by the way, Shay, I too noticed that uh, Mariner that went for him was seen to blow up. But, of course, they don't put that in the story. No, they don't. Yeah, I got a story. Give me the triangle story. All right, Mike, I got your stories from my, from my dad from when he flew for Eastern. He had a couple of stories that he did out there in that area back in the when he was flying captain on the 720 and the DC-8 later on, uh, uh, back in part of it due to that Control 1150 that they used to have uh, going southbound out of uh, in the old charts. Uh, he had a lot of compass. Several times he had some compass problems uh, going where everything would go kind of haywire. Even the whiskey compass would all start swinging around and all that, but eventually it straightened out. There was no problems or anything, but there was definitely a lot of uncertainty going on at the time, and everybody looked at each other, as my dad said, and uh, it, it squared away. And myself, I, I've flown down in that area much later, and I never once ever had a problem flying through the Bermuda Triangle at all, except for my own mistakes. <laughs> But yeah. anyway, that's uh, that's my oh, story. Man. <laughs> my understanding is there's no there's no part of the oceans of similar size anywhere in the world where you can't look and find you know instances of uh, aircraft that they don't have or ships lost that they don't have the final word on. Uh, I've the, heard the that triangle too. is not unique. Uh-huh. Well, well, it's know, like they always used to say that passengers always used to come up to the cockpit uh, when you're flying in a, an oceanic. Uh, crossing either Atlantic or Pacific, and they'd look out of the cockpit window and they say, boy, there's a lot of water out there. And I used to just tell them, I says, yeah, and that's just the top. Very good. We hope you enjoyed the broadcast and that you will return to our November 4th broadcast of Secrets in the Cockpit. It is a call-in show, and we hope you will add your voice to those of a few Eastern pilots telling their secrets on the flight deck. Now, we've been cleared to land, so check that your seatbelts are securely fastened until we are at the gate.
Thank you. 